Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 78 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond, and I am a middle school music teacher in the D.C. area. And of course, I'm a Modern Classrooms implementer, and I'm a mentor as well. And I'm really excited for this episode, which is our February feedback and Q&A. I'm also excited that for this feedback and Q&A episode, I'm joined by a guest. Uh, We're going to cover some of our listener feedback and answer some questions that you all sent in by email and on the Facebook group and on Slack. So tonight I am joined by Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you? I am awesome. How are you? I am doing great. And thank you so much for joining me. So Sam is a distinguished Modern Classrooms educator and also a Modern Classrooms mentor. And Sam, we were talking before the call. I learned that you've been a mentor for quite a long time, actually. Yes, I have. I've been a mentor now for a little over a year. Awesome. Uh, I feel like we're in good hands. These questions are going to get answered by some experienced Modern Classrooms teachers. Um, Before we start diving into the feedback from this past month and the questions, Sam, I want to give you an opportunity just to introduce yourself to our listeners. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you teach, where you teach, and also how you came to the Modern Classrooms Project? Sure, absolutely. So hello again, guys. My name is Sam, and I actually teach in Washington, D.C. at Thurgood Marshall Academy. Um, I am a biology teacher and also the science department chair. And I was introduced to Modern Classroom um, actually through a co-worker and colleague of mine. She was super excited about the resources Modern Classroom provided, and we were also um, experiencing some real um, challenges with virtual learning. So it came at a really great time and it truly transformed my classroom and made learning and teaching exciting all over again. Yeah, it is. It is exciting to teach in a modern classroom. I love hearing that from teachers. We hear that a lot, but it's not never gets old to hear that, you know, because it's true. It's a it's a totally new way of teaching. And it's just so refreshing to be in a modern classroom. So let's dive into the feedback and the questions that we've gotten from you all, our listeners, this month. Uh, These past several episodes, of course, we're in our season on self-pacing, and we've gotten two really big sort of pieces of feedback around general topics that we've talked about on the podcast. And the first one that I've seen discussed a lot on the Facebook group and also in Slack and just also resonated with me is this idea of guardrails. I really like the idea of guardrails in in the context of self-pacing, um, I think it seems like a really great way of thinking about how we structure self-pacing. We've been talking about this idea of supporting kids sort of using guardrails all, all month and really all this year in this season on self-pacing. But the idea came out explicitly in our previous episode on self-pacing in secondary education. Uh, Amy, I think, was the person who brought it sort of to the table. And it really makes sense. I absolutely agree. I think it's really important to consider um, the unexpected when it comes to this particular modern curriculum. So having those kind of resources and markers in place will truly support both the teacher as well as the students and kind of keep the model um, 
successfully um, moving along. Yeah. One of the ways that it supports both of us is by sort of like, you know, we don't have to teach the students how to self-pace explicitly. This was a question that I actually asked about how do we sort of teach the model less and less and less as students get older in, you know, later elementary, middle school, and then secondary education. But I think that the answer to that question was really that we don't need to teach the model too much at all, but instead we put these guardrails in place. And it's it's less work for us because if we've organized our class to guide the kids through the content, we don't need to spend so much time sort of reorienting them back on the right track. I think that setting up a unit in a guardrailed kind of way definitely makes sense. I almost imagine like a what are those called when you go bowling and they have like the inflatable tubes in the gutters so the bowling ball can't fall into the gutter? The students can't really go wrong. So I love this idea of guardrails. Some people on Facebook who mentioned the idea of guardrails uh, specifically mentioned using smaller chunks for self-pacing. So self-pacing by week rather than by unit, which definitely makes sense to me because it's like you have less of an area within which to go wrong. Like you have fewer lessons to do and so it's less daunting, but also it's like you stay within your lane. You do these three lessons and then you move on with the whole class together. So I like that idea of shortening the self-pacing blocks as a guardrail. And of course, another one that we definitely talked about a lot on episode 75 on tools for self-pacing was linear LMS layouts. Um, Sam, I don't know about you, but this has been like the deal breaker for me. When I learned that I could put just the lessons on Google Classroom and nothing else, my students never got lost anymore. (laughs) No, I absolutely agree. I think um, being as consistent as possible and having that um, layout that truly supports students, um, like a student-friendly format, allows not only students to feel they're in control, but it kind of sets up a classroom norm digitally that, that really helps and excites the students about where they should pick up the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't usually go wrong, right? Because you, like you said, you have a routine, you have a norm, like this is how this class works. I think in a lot of ways, the model itself is the guardrails. But, you know, if we can make like a specific linear path through the work on our LMS, they don't, they don't get lost. And so, yeah, they come in and they're excited because they're like, okay, I'm on lesson three. And they don't have to think about how to find lesson three. (laughs) They just start doing lesson three. So yeah, guardrails. Um, the second piece of feedback that we got was on tracking different types of data points. And this is something that I sort of started thinking about. This is really more like follow-up for me, actually. I haven't read too much about this, but I, I want to keep people thinking about this because Emily mentioned this on the episode on tools for self-pacing. She mentioned that she tracks how many attempts a student makes before mastering a, a lesson. And that got me thinking about what other data points we can track. You know, I had never sort of thought outside the box of ways to track data besides just whether a student had completed a lesson or mastered it. Um, But this was really cool. One thing that I thought of was to track how many days have passed since a student has submitted a lesson. I wrote a little blog post on this and I like automated it into my pacing tracker um, using JavaScript, which terrified me because I have no idea how to write JavaScript, but it does work. And it's actually really cool. I've been using it every single day. Like I look at that, that number that says, you know, student one has submitted a lesson yesterday and student three hasn't submitted a lesson since nine days ago. 
So I know who I'm going to check in with today. Um, but yeah, this just this general idea of checking other data points besides mastery, besides, yes, you completed the lesson and you can move on. Sam, do you have any other ideas? Have you thought about this or do you just track mastery, basically? This is an awesome point. I think that I've actually experienced this um, with a different online program for credit recovery, Edgenuity. Um, typically, students are given the opportunity to um, reassess multiple times, but then you do have to consider how many times a student will take a mastery check and um, the gaps between one lesson or one mastery check to the next. So I think it's an awesome idea, like you mentioned, to have something that supports the teacher, some automated system that will update and kind of alert you, maybe turn um, certain students' names um, a different color when you kind of start your lesson. And it'll truly, truly have you supporting the students in other areas other than completion rate. Yeah, because and it also like sort of it doesn't tell us specifically what's going on, but it might show us when there's something else going on. Right. It's interesting to see, you know, it, it really puts a very quantitative number on what, you know, in some cases can be a very extreme problem or in other cases it might just be the students learning to self-pace. Right. Because they're like, oh, you know, I have until next month to finish this unit. So I'm just going to sit here and watch YouTube or whatever. But, you know, after several days, you could look at that and there's a number to say, no, it's been five class periods and you haven't done anything. So I really enjoyed that. And I'm going to put that in the show notes if people want to check it out. Cool. So Sam, do you want to dive into some of these questions that we've gotten from listeners? I absolutely do, Zach. And I'll actually get us started. There are a series of questions here that I'm thrilled to speak about that I can also relate to myself. Um, The first one is, how is your great reporting system set up to communicate to students and guardians what has and has not been mastered? Yeah, definitely. This is an an awesome question Um, because in some ways I feel like grades, (laughs) the way that I grade doesn't feel like it's mastery-based. When I think of mastery-based grading, I'm thinking of my mastery checks and I grade them out of one, right? I grade it either zero or one. And so, you know, I kind of use other data, like I was saying before, how long a student has taken to submit a lesson, uh, how many lessons they've mastered out of the number of lessons that are on pace to communicate with students and parents and guardians Um, I've talked about this before, how I use mail merges, like straight out of my pacing tracker to say, you know, this student has submitted and mastered four lessons out of an expected six lessons to be mastered at this point. But that's not a grade. Um, The grades that I give, I, I give a grade at the very end of an entire unit, which says they mastered eight out of 10 lessons. And so they have an 80%. I, I feel okay doing that. It's sort of sort of strange to sort of just put a number on it like that. Um, But I guess within the scope of this unit, you've done eight of the 10 things. And so that works for me as an 80%. But again, that is a sort of a summative way of reporting things. I don't use that to communicate what has and has not been mastered. I, I just use, you know, emails, automated emails and other data. And I talk with the students and I email the parents, you know, 
not automated, me emailing them if a student has some extenuating circumstance or if they're way behind or something, um, I'll just reach out myself. So I guess in a way I would say that my grade reporting system isn't set up to communicate <laughs> with students and guardians. Um, what would you say? I'm curious to hear your response because mine was sort of strange. <laughs> no, Zach, believe it or not, I like you typically use um, emails biweekly. I reach out to parents with progress reports that are generated with my LMS Canvas. So it makes it super easy. Um, I had the privilege of teaching really small class sizes. The ratio with my particular um, semester based course is about one to like 12 when it comes to teacher student. Um, pairing. So it makes managing, updating, reporting, um, all sorts of great progress, mastery, along with just overall um, highs and lows, really easy. Um, students typically also enjoy the one-on-one check-ins um, that comes as a result of these biweekly progress reports. Um, and I also use a Remind Me app. So teachers, within my department, along with students and parents, we all kind of stay in sync um, with this particular app that kind of uh, connects both school life with home life. Yeah, I've heard of the Remind Me app. I think it's really cool. I mean, I think that, I guess, unless you have a very, very large number of students, I think that both of us are saying the same thing, which is like, you need to just be in touch with the students and the guardians, right? No, I absolutely agree. Constant communication is key, and I think it's been a great success for me and my students thus far. Yeah, and it shows the parents and guardians that you're engaged, right, that you care as their teacher. And it also helps that we have that data to say, you know, there have been four lessons so far and you've done three, and so here's where you're at. Um, Doesn't exactly say what has or has not been mastered, but very often when I send a progress report that says they've done three out of four, the parent will reach back out and say, what lesson are they missing and what can I have them do? And so, you know, I just tell them, you know, the one that's missing is lesson four. It's here on Google Classroom or on Canvas, right? And so um, the information is there, the data is there, even if it's not necessarily in the grade reporting system. Shall we move on to this next question? Absolutely. All right. This one says, how have implementers determined suggested due dates for lessons that fit student pacing? Sometimes my due dates end up being too fast or too slow for how quickly students are moving through a unit. Yeah, this is actually very interesting. Um, I think through trial and error, my own experience came from building out my first modern classroom unit and kind of checking in with feedback and revising um, my own lessons to see that setting uh, these particular due dates based on the complexity of that unit really helped. Um, As a bio teacher, teaching a unit like cellular respiration is a lot more complex than maybe a unit on cells or systems. So understanding which unit um, students are actually working on is what I use sometimes for my due dates that I set. Uh, data from the previous year also really helped. If I noticed students from the previous year really flew through this unit or this lesson and took a longer time completing another, that particular data really helped. And then also being really flexible with my due dates um, on major assessments. So projects or really heavy assignments 
um, because I have multiple versions of it, I am okay with sometimes extending that deadline um, for certain students who just need that extra cushion and that extra time to really show their true mastery of that unit. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. In fact, I was laughing a little when you said trial and error because I was going to say the exact same thing. Uh, I was going to literally say the exact same thing, which is that I got it wrong a lot. And then I learned how to, you know, based on previous years, how to adapt that pacing that I thought would be right for what actually happened. And I would say almost always it was me giving the students more time. Um, you know, if if a student's working too quickly through your units, um, that's good. You can teach them more stuff. You can go deeper on the content with them. That's that's a good problem to have. But like you said at the end there, being flexible, giving students more time when they need it is really never a bad thing. And I will even, you know, if we're getting toward the end of a unit and I know a big grade is coming up or maybe even the end of the school year, right? Like we've got to get this done because the school year is going to end on us. I will cut out stuff and I will really pare down my curriculum to just the absolute essentials in order to give students the time that they need. And what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is, you know, me saying, you know what? Lesson three was on pace yesterday, but I'm going to keep it on pace today. You all just need more time for lesson three. You know, I'll do that if the students showed me that they were working, not just all sitting around being lazy. You know, I won't do it for them. But if kids are working, if they're really putting in the effort and they need more time, I'll just give it to them. You know, the pacing tracker, I, I change the colors on the pacing trackers. You know, I make it blue when the next lesson is on pace. And so that's up to me to decide. And so I give them the time. And I think that, again, we're, we have very similar answers. Agreed, Zach. I think that it's so nice to be able to relate <laughs> with these sorts of instances. Um, I would love to actually discuss our next question. So that is, how are teachers keeping up with the tracker and all the mastery checks? I feel a bit overwhelmed with all the checking. This question was interesting to me. Um, and I do have a lot of mastery checks that I check every day. I, w- I guess if I had to estimate on a given day, I probably look at 50 pieces of student work, uh, both in the morning and then throughout the day, like in class. Um, and on a normal day, I teach four sections of about 20 students each. So there you have some numbers. Um, but like, I don't know. I, I guess the checking for me is not overwhelming because I actually enjoy it because I'm looking at real student work all the time. Um I don't feel overwhelmed and I do look at a lot of mastery checks, but the thing is that they give me an opportunity to check in with kids. Anything can come up in a mastery check uh, and I can go over and talk to them. That's when real teaching happens, right? When I see that they got something wrong and I go over and I reteach it to them one-on-one or maybe in a small group with an, a small group of kids that also got that same lesson wrong. Um, it's it, it just like, it gives me the opportunity to do the kind of teaching that I really, really like. And so it doesn't overwhelm me. I don't know. What's your response? Um, I think that this is an interesting question because Modern Classroom, I believe, carved out that support with um, allowing sort of a flip classroom model in the class where students are kind of working independently, self-pacing, which frees up the teacher to kind of... Um, set aside time to check mastery checks and also to kind of update the tracker. So 
Um, what I found that works for me is setting specific days each week to kind of share the class tracker. So maybe Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays are the set days that the class tracker is um, kind of displayed, is up to date, and there are shout outs and all sorts of experts that are given their acknowledgments and their celebrations. Um, I also typically um, maximize my planning periods. I understand that we as teachers are pulled um, for many other tasks, whether it's covering other teachers' classes who are out that day, or maybe even just planning with another teacher in your department. Um, Outside of those uh, times, I typically try to use my planning period to kind of update that tracker and look over those mastery checks to keep um, the grading process really authentic and the students buying into the curriculum. Um, also, uh, peer editing is really helpful. Students are able to get immediate feedback when the rubrics are provided from a peer. And then I, as the teacher, follow up um, with like a secondary uh kind of solid grade for that particular assessment or mastery check. Uh, So the student kind of gets whatever support they need if they're trying to move along at their steady pace. And um, last but not least, uh, mastery checks typically in Google form with multiple choice uh, prompts really helps as well because it updates that mastery check um, with its grade immediately after. So those are just some uh, key kind of go-tos that I use to make sure that I'm I'm staying on top of these kind of ongoing changes within the curriculum. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned the Google Forms, but I think also like I, my my mastery checks, they wouldn't work as Google Forms because I'm having the students take pictures, but I mean, take screenshots of their work. Uh, and the way that I've structured them, I can grade it in, you know, five seconds. I can look at if if it's right. I can look at it and say, yes, this is right. Or I can look at it and say, no, we need to talk about this. And then I just put a little note in. I mean, I put an R on the pacing tracker to tell the student and also tell me, you need to revise this. Um, And then we'll deal with it when we deal with it, which may be in class or they may just watch the video again themselves. But yeah, the idea of a a mastery check that is graded in a very short time, (laughs) that's easy to grade in a short time, definitely good idea to use the forms there because they grade themselves and then you just put that in the tracker. But, and yeah, you also mentioned something else, which was how you use your time in the classroom to kind of move around the room and check in on mastery checks as they come up. Like, I don't think that teachers should have the idea that we get 25 mastery checks and sit down and do all of them in one go. They, because the students are self-pacing, they can come in, you know, one, maybe two at a time throughout an entire class period. And that's not unmanageable. I know some teachers like to sort of segment off the second half of their class to just look at mastery checks and they become more or less unavailable. I mean, obviously they're there in the classroom if there's some kind of an emergency, the teacher is there. But like they're saying, this is now my time. And unless you have a really important question that only I can answer, I'm doing mastery checks. I don't do that. I I sort of just circulate throughout the, the class. And if a student raises their hand and says, Mr. Diamond, I submitted lesson three. I'll walk back to my computer when I have a moment and I'll look at it. Um, And then that will guide. I have a little list in a pocket notebook that I carry around of the students that I want to check in with. And so they'll go on the list if they need to. If not, I'll just put a check up on the tracker and say, yes, you did it. And that's that. So yeah, it, it doesn't take too much time. But also, like I said, you know, the content of these mastery checks feels worthwhile to me to be checking because it's where I get to do the teaching that I feel most 
sort of most fulfilled doing. Shall we move on to this next question? Absolutely. I'm excited. All right. This one's tough. This one's a tricky question. It says, how do you motivate students to do something now when they can technically do it whenever? How to maintain a sense of urgency? Zach, this question is so interesting. I feel like I can write a thesis on this. (laughs) (laughs) Self-motivation is still a skill that um, even adults struggle with. Um, In my classroom, though, first and foremost, I think outside of the curriculum, it's just about student-teacher relationship building. Really spending that first maybe week or so in the beginning of the school year to build that relationship, just to see the types of personalities that you have in your classrooms, and then maybe venture off into those tangible things that'll keep them kind of connected and buying into just being accountable. Um, Some things that I use um, is called the teacher chair or couch. So typically, if a student really worked hard, they've gone through one or two lessons after having a really rough week where they didn't get much done. I have a chair that rolls um, outside of the chair behind my desk that students can sit in and they love it. Yes, the rolly chair. Yeah, exactly. It's that indirect kind of praise where everyone kind of knows, hey, Um, This student really excelled this week. They may not be ahead of schedule. They may not have mastered uh, particular lessons before other students, but they've had a great week. Um, Another thing that I like to use is phone calls home uh, with praise. Many times phone calls are negative or concerning when it comes to maybe progress academically, but getting a phone call home, even in high school, really feels good. Um, for a student just to see their parent kind of proud of them and being able to kind of uh, give them that shout out or that high five when they get home. Uh, Last but not least, maybe like an incentive-based milestone. So I have what's called degrees in my classroom. You can earn an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's, or even a doctoral. And each one of those milestones awarded typically if like uh, you've mastered Uh, two mastery checks in a row, or maybe um, you have attempted two or three of the Aspire to Do's this unit, uh, you can cash in with your degree and maybe get a healthy snack. Uh, You can also earn extra credit points um, towards the unit exam, or maybe even pull from an incentive wall. The incentive walls have all sorts of different uh, prizes that a student can select if that suits them best that week. So those are some sorts of things that I found really help students uh, stay motivated and keep that sense of urgency. What about you, Zach? Wow, those are such good answers. I don't have any answers that are that concrete. I mean, those are excellent ideas. And I I just love the chair idea. (laughs) I actually have two of the like special yellow rolly chairs in my room, and I cannot keep kids out of them. So I'm going to I'm going to steal that idea. And give them the share when they earn it. I think that's a great idea. You know, I I guess I, with this question, instead of thinking so concretely like you did, which I love because I'm going to use your ideas, I was thinking more about this idea of a sense of urgency, um, which I think it's, it's something that I've sort of always struggled with as a teacher, because in a lot of ways, I feel conflicted between being able to form relationships with my students where they feel comfortable 
and being able to instill that sense of urgency. It's either like I'm forcing them to do something they don't want and they don't like that, or I'm super relaxed and I'm just hanging out with them. And they do want that, but they also don't get any work done. It's a really tricky balance that I'm I'm personally still working on. It's it's not unique to modern classrooms, I don't think. I mean, I guess technically they can do any work whenever, right? Like they can do all the work whenever. They can never do the work if they want. But I definitely think that the relationship building is just so important for them to even consider doing the work with any degree of engagement. That's That's been my experience because before when I would stand at the front of the room and be like, the work is the priority. You know, I I didn't get the, the sort of engagement and I didn't get the sort of positive vibes that I get in my classroom now. And, you know, sometimes it just takes, like I was saying, we were saying this before, it just takes a conversation with a student to be like, you know, okay, we have a 50 minute class and you've just spent 20 minutes watching YouTube. Um, are you good now or do you need to keep doing that? Sometimes they just need to be doing that. Like there are certain days when kids will come into my classroom and nothing will motivate them. Um, other days I can, I can do that. I can have a conversation with them and get them on the right track um, and motivate them myself. I think in a more general way though, I'm still struggling with this idea of, of a sense of urgency. No. So I do think we all can agree. This is one of those um, kind of topics that is ongoing and it's really hard to just have a concrete answer for Um, but I am definitely interested in keeping the conversation going so I can pull more ideas from other educators, either from Facebook or even just through Slack and any other support systems there. Yeah, me too. Obviously you, I mean, you had more concrete strategies than I did. I'm, I want to hear too. So listeners podcast at (laughs) modernclassrooms.org. Tell me, let us know. All right. We have one more question. Do you want to Take us out on this last question. I'd love to. This question actually came up with myself, a lot of other educators um, within my building. We've discussed this together and we are curious. Where do you find time to produce instructional videos? And also, do you update or revise your videos from the previous year? (laughs) So... Listeners to this podcast will know that I am the absolute worst person to ask this question to because I do like a straight up professional video production workflow that takes me many, many, many hours. Um, And I do not recommend that teachers do that. But I will say this. uh, I find the time in my planning periods when, as a traditional teacher, I would have been planning. (laughs) You know, we have that time. If you're not doing the video production stuff that I do, and you shouldn't. I mean, unless you really want to, which is the reason that I that I do is that I like doing that stuff. It's like my hobby. If you're not doing that, it does not take that long to record an instructional video. What does take a long time is the planning. But the planning is something that we've done as teachers forever. We have planning periods for that. And I've always said the hard part is standing in front of a room of children and getting them to listen to you. That's definitely harder, at least in my estimation, than recording a video. The question about updating and revising videos from previous years, I will if the video didn't land. So I'm taking notes every day. I'm taking notes on how lessons go. And so, you know, for example, my a couple months ago, I did a unit on using samples, samples like little clips of existing songs to make a new song. And there's this really, really tricky part where you have to beat match the samples and the students just could not get it. And I had to basically check in with like every single student. And I very much am going to revise that for next year because the video 
didn't do a good enough job of teaching them what they needed to know in order to do the beat matching. But what I learned in that relatively stressful experience was how to effectively teach it in a very short time because I was going through the kids like one by one by one checking in with them. And so I figured out what to say. I figured out what to draw. I figured out what to do on their computer so they could see the model, like how to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I'll go back and revise that one. Sometimes though, I, I don't like if a video or an entire unit works really well, I do not revise it. So my, my sixth grade class, which is the exact same class that I've taught every year that I've been at my current school, which this is my sixth year at my school. Um, you know, I revised it last year after my first year of modern classrooms because the videos in my first year of modern classrooms were not good. And so I made them better with my sort of new strategies and skills for making videos. But this year I'm basically using the exact same videos that I did last year for the sixth grade class. So the answer is that I do sometimes revise them if they don't work, but sometimes I also don't. Yeah, I think I can agree there, Zach. Um, when I first joined modern classroom, I was uh, I dove in head first. I was recording nonstop. I had no real troubles editing them. Um, I already had the background knowledge from previous years where I naturally planned out lessons. So I just actually put them on a video and it was super simple. Um, I think that I typically, like you, keep videos the same and authentic. Uh, but I have found that connecting with the students uh, made a difference. So I went back and maybe re-recorded one or two videos to put my face in it to really um, connect with the students more or maybe bring out a demonstration from a lab to really help the students uh, fully understand what was being asked of them. Um, but I think what also helped that first year, since I was still sort of new to the program, um, was being okay with maybe having one unit, uh, a traditional unit. So there were just certain topics and standards students just really struggled and uh, really struggled with. So allowing myself to kind of put a pen in recording and kind of reverting back just for that one unit to a traditional style really um, gave the students that breath of fresh air to get um, direct instruction and then also pulled students back in when it was time to transition back to the modern classroom format. So just really taking into consideration what's best for your students, um, what's best with the content area that you're teaching it's really nice to plan around what works, but then also keep the, the rigor and the expectation there to prepare them for college and for that more um, kind of standard-based teaching that will be uh, the norm once students graduate. Yeah, definitely. That makes total sense. And I, and I love that that idea of sort of swapping back and forth between traditional teaching and modern classrooms when you need to, because like we've always said, you can do that, right? Like committing to trying the model does not mean that you are 100% doing the model all the time, unless you want to. I mean, I am now, but uh, that's that's great. Like I feel like you you read your students, right? And you see what the students need and that absolutely works. I mean, you know, the instructional videos are a big part of the model just because they facilitate self-pacing. But definitely if they're taking you too much time to produce, I would say you can 
lower that by being less of a perfectionist about them. But like also knowing like if you're making too many videos and you want to do some traditional teaching, you can do that. You can like stop the class and talk to them or you can say, okay, lesson four is going to be a teacher led lesson. You can totally do that. Um, you also mentioned going back to old videos and like adding things to them, like your, you know, your face or the video of a lab demo, which I think is really cool. And it made me think like, you know, even if you're not going off the deep end and doing all the crazy editing stuff that I like to do, as you make more and more instructional videos, you do sort of develop a skill set and you kind of get some chops for making videos and you can do more stuff like that. You're a little bit more adventurous and you start adding animations or adding second videos into the, you know, into the video, like of your face or of, like you said, of a lab or something. And I think that's also true. Like the more you do it, certainly the first video that I made, I took you know, for one video, I probably took like three hours because I was like, oh, I got to try it again. Oh, I messed up. I got to stop and try it again. Oh, I said the wrong thing. I got to stop and try it again. <laughs> like I drew the wrong annotation. I, yeah. Like eventually you sort of get into a flow of making videos in the way that you're most comfortable and it stops taking so much time. But you do sort of have to get the chops at, at first. Cool. Well, thank you, Sam, for joining me. This was really awesome. These were some good questions, too. I love these Q&A episodes. Thank you so much for joining me to tackle some of these questions. No problem. It was my pleasure. Um, if you guys are curious or um, would like to connect, I am happy to join one-on-one or even as a whole group. Uh, feel free to give me um, or shoot me an email. My email is Samantha gains at modernclassroom.org. Um, and yeah, I'm more than happy to kind of talk through some more of these ideas that come up. Awesome. Thank you. And I'll, I'll have that and a bunch of other things in the show notes so you all can find Sam if you'd like to. Um, listeners, these Q&A and feedback episodes, they're really contingent on that feedback. So keep it coming. I, I love reading the emails and I love reading, sort of just browsing the Facebook page, preparing for these episodes. Um, keep that email coming. You can email us, as I said, at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And of course, you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 78. Thank you all so much for listening and for sending in that awesome feedback. I hope you have a great week and we will be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Modern Classrooms Project.